Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. This is half an hour on your radio where we will be talking about science. I am Stu and I'm actually going to be talking about bananas. Is this because Chris told you to talk about bananas? Yes, because there's been a, a few, request. A it, few, it was a request, wasn't it? There's been a few news reports around about banana getting. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I just made that up, but I think oh, I think you? it'll stick. That, that's pretty good. I like yeah, that banana, banana getting. Really so like I'm gonna that. I'm gonna get to the bottom of banana getting and see what's really going on with okay. the bananas. So this is the whole question about whether bananas are going to be wiped out. In that's the, right. To do like yeah. genetic diversity or something like that. Basically. Yep. Okay. Um, Claire. Yeah. Well, I'm actually joined by three special guests today: Rachel, Chris, and Leo from Wild Melbourne, um, who are a not-for-profit organisation that aims to connect people and nature in a variety of different ways. They've got websites, I've got Twitter and Instagram, but they also run community events, um, not just in Melbourne but um, around Victoria, and then um, also possibly even around Australia in the next couple of years. So, yeah, it's they've, they've got some really interesting experiences experiences and learnings from from what they've done so far. So I'm going to be talking to them. Cool. Well, we'll hear from all of them later in the show. Stay tuned. is a banana? You know, all the way back in primary school, people used to tell me that bananas are herbs. Well, that is actually true. Really? From a botanical point of view, there is no such thing as a banana tree because the banana grows on a herbaceous plant and it does get quite tall. Like banana plants are taller than me and you. Maybe not Chris. Chris is quite tall. <laughs> Chris is. Uh, That's but what they say no, about Chris. But there's no a banana. Wood. There's no wood, oh. so therefore it's So is that the difference? Is that what makes it a herb or well, as opposed to a yeah, tree? basically. Is it a grass? No. It, it's it not a grass. a grass, but it's not a palm either. Um, it's a bit like a palm, doesn't it? Yeah, pe- people do like say, oh, yeah, banana palms. You'll hear people say that mm. sometimes because they kind of look palmish. They've got mm. sort of feathery leaves at the top and a mm. single trunk. And usually. they have hands and sometimes lady fingers. <laughs> They have hands and fingers, depending on the yeah. variety. But palms have hardened, lignified stems, which bananas don't have. So okay. that's a distinction as well. Also, palms are a particular group of plants. So palms aren't trees either. Just What? Uh, just oh, really? Okay, that's technically another not. story for another. Nessie will tell um, us koalas aren't bears. I mean. <laughs> but, but they are monocots, which the palms are monocots as well. So they're all related to grasses. What's a monocot? So when, they, when their seeds germinate, one little leaf lit thing comes out. A, okay. mon- a cotyledon. Right. A single cotyledon As emerges from the seed. As opposed to a dicot. Seed. Yeah. Ah. Eudicots are pretty much all the rest of the land plants anyway. Okay. So the bananas we eat are actually also hybrids of two wild species of banana. 
which in their natural form are chock full of hard black seeds and the fruit is basically inedible. You really wouldn't want to eat them. There's a little bit of flesh around these big hard black seeds, mm-hmm. but it would be you'd be spitting out seeds all the time. The fruit itself is a berry, botanically. So bananas are berries that grow on a herb. Hang on. Really? Yeah. Banana berry. That's the shape. That's the shape. Wow. So sometime in antiquity, uh, hybrids were cultivated that give us the familiar banana we know today. And there are about a thousand varieties of edible bananas in the world. A thousand? Possibly more. Okay. We don't really know um, how many there are because they've been hybridized and and recrossed and all Mm. these things for for hundreds of years, possibly thousands of years. Does that include plantains? Plantains are, yeah, included in the the group of edible bananas. Okay. Um, So they originated in Southeast Asia and they were spread around the world by traders and travelers uh, because they're delicious Mm. and also highly nutritious. Um, So being seedless hybrids, so they're they're hybrids, which is what makes them seedless. They don't have viable seeds. They propagate bananas vegetatively. So banana plantations consist mainly of cloned plants of a selected variety. So how do they, when you say propagate them vegetatively, explain that please. Okay, so uh, a stem grows up, Yep. it flowers, it produces uh, hands of bananas, Mm -hmm. and then that stem dies off and another one will pop up about a metre or so away from that oh, okay. original plant. So they like just a, chop the old one off and the next like one pops up. Like a sucker or a... Yeah, like a sucker. Comes yeah. up out of the ground by itself. So, so there's a root system underground. They're all joined, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so they do, yeah, but you can propagate them by, you know, clonal means. You can take cuttings and you can dig up suckers and do all these other things as well, which are very clever. But mostly they just leave the plantations standing and they'll chop off the stem that flowered last year and then the next one they'll choose which one they want and let okay. that one grow up. So the reason they do that with uh, growing the plantation of all of a selected variety is it makes for uniform fruit size and everything ripens all at once. So it's all uniform harvesting and um, it's easy to get pickers at the right time and spray at the right time and all that sort of stuff. Um, So the problem with any clonally propagated crop is that uniform genetics can make plants susceptible to outbreaks of disease, especially when you've got loads and loads of the same plant all right next to each other in plantations. Before the 1950s, one of the most common varieties of banana in Europe and North America was the Gros Michel, or Big Mike. Right. You don't see the Big Mike anymore because uh, it pretty much got wiped out because of something they called Panama disease in the 1950s, giving rise to a song which you may have heard called Yes, we have no bananas. So that song was actually, there was a banana shortage. There was a global banana shortage. The main plantation variety that they had was pretty much wiped out. So they're all growing exclusively this Gros Michel variety, and they're susceptible to a particular strain of fusarium fungus, uh, which caused them to wilt, and it was immune to, it was resistant to fungicides. So they didn't have any fungicide that would kill it, which wasn't going to kill everything, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of the global production switched to other varieties of banana, which had greater resistance to the Panama fungus, and banana eaters were happy again, briefly. So the varieties of banana we mostly eat now are the Cavendish varieties. So mm-hmm. there's a group of bananas called the Cavendish group, 
Uh, they're the most commonly grown bananas in the world. They account for half of the 15 million tonnes of bananas that are traded internationally each year. Cavendish bananas were thought to be resistant to the Panama wilt disease, but recently uh, there's some evidence that there's a new strain of the fungus that might be able to attack the Cavendish. Oh, no. But also being clonally propagated, they're susceptible to other diseases, and the more pressing concern is the black cigatoka complex. So this isn't one disease. This is three diseases in one that attack the bananas, make them lose all their leaves, shut down their stress and immune responses so they can't fight off the disease. So this is sounding like banana geddon, what you're talking about. It is. It, it does sound a little bit like banana geddon. Um, we, the, the cigatoka complex was found in Fiji in the 70s, and it's been seen once in Australia in the year 2000, and they eradicated it immediately. Right. So we've got checks and balances and controls, and if anyone identifies any plants, they basically destroy everything within a, you know, radius of that ground zero plant. Go quarantine. Yeah, quarantine doing its proper job right there. But there are, as I said, there's new strains of fusarium that could potentially cause other problems. But look, the idea that bananas will go extinct is really massively overstating the problem. We've been, people have been growing bananas for thousands of years, and there's, you know, more than a thousand varieties of bananas. We may not be able to get the specific banana variety that we've grown up with and we love, um, but we'll still be able to get bananas. There, okay, there'll so be other varieties kind of, banana, of bananas yeah. will be will be slotted in. And you know, there's there's people working on improved varieties and resistant varieties and trying to find ways to fight the diseases as well. So it's really you know it's um it's not really. Uh, as dramatic as it's being made out. And even though if, if something drastic does happen, it will take some time to switch over. But, I mean, even in Australia, we had very expensive bananas for a short period of time just because they got blown away in a cyclone mm. uh, a few years back. Um, aren't bananas a staple food, though, in some countries? In some countries they are, but they're not, they don't tend to be countries that are big international traders in uh, fruit export for the most part. And also they're more like plantains and things like that. So okay. the plantains and other varieties um, are probably safer than these huge plantations of monocultural Cavendish or right, okay. any other monocultural variety. So the yes. more regional you look, the more variety there is in local populations. So that's yeah. a good thing. Um, I think more than anything, uh, this is just the news media jumping on the most alarmist story they can find because they find those stories most appealing. So we all grow up being told how unique and spectacular our Australian wildlife is, but it's pretty easy to lose sight of this, especially when we're stuck in cities or in the day-to-day of our lives. Well, a team of researchers, communicators and writers have recognised this problem and are working towards bridging the gap between our communities and our ecosystems. I have with me today Rachel, Chris and Leo from Wild Melbourne. Welcome to Lost in Science, guys. How you going, Hi. Kit? How are you? Hello, good. Now, what is Wild Melbourne all about? Who wants to answer that question? Uh, I'll have a crack at that one. So Wild Melbourne is a not-for-profit organisation. Our main aim is to connect people with the natural world, and we do that through science, the arts, 
and enabling experiences so people can form their own personal connections with nature. And how did this all come about? Uh, I guess everyone who is a part of Wild Melbourne has a science background, particularly in the environmental sciences and ecology. So everyone involved is really passionate about wildlife and biodiversity and, and our environment more broadly. So three years ago, we decided we wanted to do something to help stem the tide of issues affecting our environment. And we wanted to do that through some positive engagement with the broader community. We wanted to make nature relevant again to people and show them why it is that we love the natural world and hope that that goes some way towards solving some of the issues uh, that we face. And so you all had this, this similar enthusiasm and this similar drive. So, so what then happened next? I suppose uh, we worked really hard um, for no money for a long time, which of course you understand here at 3CR. Um, so, and you know, as as uni students, it, it wasn't particularly odd. But yeah, basically, we, we we tried to build a bit of an online presence, and and we continue to try and consolidate um, what we do as an organisation in the hopes that we can really start to tackle some of these issues and and connect people. Yeah, absolutely. So, Leo. Speaking specifically about your role as yep. the community projects manager, is that right? Technically, community works. Okay. Uh, that being more on the ground sort of stuff because it's some of our other projects, Jules take care of and that being school incursions and so forth. But yeah, essentially with the community. Leading on from that, what sort of community projects does Wild Melbourne run to engage the wider community? Well, one we've recently completed is uh, down at Point Leo, which is pretty much the what is the southwestern corner of Western Port Bay on the Mornington Peninsula. And that's a predominantly surfing community down there. And they've got some really amazing remnant uh, coastal banks of woodland. And it's one of the last few remaining uh, spots there. And they invited us to come down through Monash University and essentially help them redevelop the land and provide some form of education and engagement for the community. So... It was our first crack at it and we were super excited, wore our hearts on our <laughs> sleeves, just passion all the way. And what we ended up coming up with is some interpretive displays that kids could get their hands dirty with before they actually went out onto the beach. Quite a few nifty uh, interpretive signs ma- uh, made in the shape of surfboards. But the whole, the biggest scheme of it all was we want to get the community involved in this. We want them to help build it and we want them to take some form of ownership over their community and encourage stewardship of the land there's a lot of things in, uh, sorry there's a lot of findings in the research where if you can increase someone's sense of ownership n- not in a commercial sense necessarily but ownership just in, in terms of a well-being and a community response if you can increase that ownership and stewardship people are more inclined to, to look after their environment and we can tell you a million stories that towards the end and even right through it a lot of the community were just wrapped with what we were doing and you could see kids getting really enthusiastic about it and, and hopefully they take that experience with them to other places too. Yeah, and, uh, and apply it in other areas of their life. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And over time. Yeah, mm. yeah. And so that's sort of some face-to-face experiences that you guys are running. How about sort of in the, in the more online space? Uh, in terms of community works at the moment, it's, it's something we're still hashing out at the moment and we're trying to develop something called a community corner where we can – basically pull together a lot of resources, things you could do at home, around the house, parks you can visit. Yeah. We've got something called Bush Beats, which is basically online sort of walking tracks and where you can go and visit. So that's all starting to come together quite nicely. Uh, but f- predominantly our online presence at the moment, or at least on our webpage, is very much uh, related around the articles. And that's, uh, as Rachel will tell you, it's whether it's expression through art, uh, non-fiction, fiction, and even just 
common issues or at least everyday issues in science and the environment. Yeah, well, that's a really good segue, Rach, to to talk about the online articles. Mm. And it's just like a treasure trove of amazing, interesting <laughs> articles on on your website there. Um, I'll just give a plug for it. It's um, <laughs> worldmelbourne.org. Is that right? Yeah, yes. worldmelbourne.org, yes, exactly. Yep, yep. So um, you've, you've got these articles. They're about nature and research, but also philosophy, <laughs> ethics. You've got some pop culture in there. Like there's all sorts of different topics um, that all come together. Is this sort of diversity in ideas and topics deliberate? Is it is it something that's really important to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as Chris was saying before, we all of us at Wild Melbourne, or pretty much all of us have a biological science background. Um, and I sort of came in with a science background and the arts background. And there's pretty much all the members of Wild Melbourne are also really interested in the arts, even though they don't have that background. And we found that, you know, a lot of people... Um, as much as they love engaging with science, our readers, they also love engaging with the arts. And I think the two, the combination of the two is really, really important. And I think you'll find a lot of science communicators at the moment absolutely agree with that. There's a lot of arts in the science and there's a lot of science in the arts. So um, it was definitely a, de- a deliberate move for us to try and bring the two together in our publications. Yeah. yeah. And the philosophy as well. How about yeah. that? And, and the, the whole ethics of it. Yeah, well, yeah, philosophy definitely is something and something that we're going to try writing more about because it can be quite a tricky topic to sort of for readers to digest if they don't have the the background. But I think, um, you know, we definitely um, think that our readers, um, they, they love, they're able to understand complex scientific ideas and, you know, we, we see them engaging with our articles and commenting on them and talking about it. And I think they you know, would engage just as much with philosophical concepts and, you know, ecology, you know, people who are ecologists, what they do, a lot of that is based you in philosophy. You are listening to Lost in Science and we are and talking vice versa, to Chris, Rachel talk about and Leo from Ecology Wild and Melbourne. sort of everything's all mixed up together. So I think um, it's really important to talk about both sides of the spectrum and bring the two together because I think different people, you know, there's a diverse range of people out there and they can engage with both sides of it, which is really good. Chris, you are the managing director, but you're also an aspiring documentary maker. Tell us a little bit about the Wild Melbourne documentary you're making. Yeah, look, um, so I suppose the, the documentary is really focused around exploring how people in Melbourne and Victoria more broadly connect with nature. So it's really asking quite an open question, which is what is our relationship with the natural world? Um, and and trying to showcase this in the, I guess, the context of, of Melbourne as Australia's fastest growing city, um, you know, ever more resources being required by our population here and more of a strain being put on our landscape and our ocean and coast, of course. So within that context um, and, and by trying to build in some of the science around these issues, we want to see, you know, how do our community connect? Are they aware of issues? Are they open to um, engaging with nature? Or are we going along the path that research suggests is happening in some cities, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, where people are just increasingly disconnected from the natural world? And that is, of course, contributing um, in these places to a lack of awareness and a lack of appreciation of environmental issues and more broadly the environment itself, but also um, some very severe impacts on mental and physical well-being. So that's not something we want for our future here in Melbourne or Victoria or indeed Australia. Um, So I think it's a very important topic for us to discuss. Can we have any idea about when that'll be 
coming out. Oh, sorry, it's a question. No, 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 look, look, I've given myself a goal of mid next year, so hopefully next year sometime. Yeah, stay tuned, 2017. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, Um, fingers crossed. Yeah. (laughs) Quickly from each of you, in the time that you've been in Wild Melbourne, undertaking the work that you're doing, what from each of you have been your highlight so far? It was with the Point Leo project and there's a mural down there on the on the toilet wall facing the beach. And Kathy, one of our members, designed it. It's amazing. And we got a lot of the campers and the kids down there on, on a weekend during the summer holidays to paint it with us. I love my fish. I research sharks and so forth. And I'm painting this Port Jackson shark at the bottom of the wall. And I can hear these kids at the back having these playful arguments saying, oh, I know what that animal is. I bet you don't. And they were rattling off the animal's names. And lo and behold, some of them were wrong, but then some of them were right. And it just stirred up all these emotions in me because I was like, these kids are learning and they don't even know it. And they're having debates and they don't even know it. And they're painting and it's just like learning and having fun all in the one hit. I actually stopped and I went, this is it. Like, this is why we do what we do. And when you've got motivation like that and when moments like that happen, it makes every single ounce of sacrifice worth it. Mine's not really, a, well, it's not a specific highlight. It's going to sound a bit shallow, but we recently um, reached 3,000 Facebook likes and we've been sort of getting more followers on Twitter and on Instagram, which sounds, yeah, as I said, like a bit of a shallow goal, but it's really important to to me and also to Billy, my co-editor, who's the science and conservation editor, because it basically means we get more readers. And we've also got a, a monthly newsletter that um, mm-hmm. that we send out, you know, article highlights and news and updates and events that are going on. And, you know, we've reached, recently reached 400 subscribers on that which doesn't seem like a lot but it's just so fantastic that we you know every day checking our Facebook page and seeing people commenting and engaging with our articles and with the the things that we share and it's it's really great to share articles and um you know news and updates from other groups as well that you know have the same goals as we do and um seeing people on there um yeah engaging in discussion about the issues and um being keen to get out there and get into nature especially our bush beats and our splash spots, which I think Leo mentioned earlier, which are just basically reviews of yeah, hiking trails and of um, places to go snorkeling and diving. And those are some of our most popular posts because you pe- get people commenting, being like, oh, I've been there, it's a great place, or let's go there this weekend, the weather's going to be great, mm. or something like that. And that's sort of this tangible thing that we can see happening in the community is that people are actually saying, yep, let's go out and do this because we've read this article. And that's really amazing to me. That must be an amazing feeling. It is, yeah. um, and just while we're on that topic, so your Twitter. We're at Wild Melbourne on yep. Twitter and same on Instagram. Same on Instagram. Yep. And yeah, just Wild Melbourne, search that on Facebook and it should pop up. And can I just say the photos that you've got, they are beautiful jewels in my oh, newsfeed really? every oh. time I get them. You have to thank the community for yeah, a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, they all contribute those. Yeah. They send them in to us, which is fantastic. Well, that's that's amazing. Any listeners out there who um, are wildlife photographers, mm. then they can contribute. Absolutely. Yeah, we Absolutely. do hashtag, hashtag Wild Melbourne. A lot of them come through on Instagram, but you can also do it via Facebook, Twitter, if you want to send them to us and we can share them that way. So, And there's, there's one, um, there's sort of a, I guess we call it a winner, but it's not really a winner of any competition. It's just sort of the, the photo that we think has been the most popular or the most unique of the month gets shared in the monthly newsletter. Great. So that's really, really exciting as Wonderful. well. Wonderful. We'll put that on our website as yeah, well and up on you. Facebook. Great. Yes. Um, and Chris, any highlights? You know, you, you work really hard towards something and you never know if it's worth it or if you're kidding yourself with, you know, some of the aims that you have. 
And then when you get moments of validation, like Leo and Rachel are talking about, it goes a long way to motivating you to work further. And it confirms that, you know, maybe what you're doing is worthwhile. And I think through the validation we've received through being given projects um, like what we've done at Point Leo, through receiving much attention online, through having some 200 people show up to the one and only seminar we've yet put on um, and film screening, and having people come up to us after talks and telling us how inspired they are to go out and get into nature and contribute in some meaningful way, that just means the world to me and I'm sure it means the world to to everyone Mm, in Wild Melbourne because it tells us that what we're doing is needed and is wanted and it's worthwhile and you can feel the momentum building behind it. And we're very much, as much as we're the ones running this, it's not ours. It's a, it's it's for the community and of the community. And I think, you know, I say that within Victoria, but we, we do have plans to extend beyond Victoria. And so I, I would say to, to everyone listening that, you know, if, if, this is, if you can feel a need for this kind of thing, for this greater connection with the natural world and greater scientific literacy and um, expression of, of, of love and appreciation for nature, then, then get in touch because, you know, that's what powers us and hopefully um, lets us empower the community. Our listeners are from a wide geographical range. So you've talked a bit about Melbourne, but how can people outside Melbourne and Victoria get involved as well? You mentioned um, Facebook and um, Twitter and sharing photos. Any other ways? I think um, regardless of where you are in Australia, if you're interested in what we do, drop us a line because there there may well be a future um, working with us to deliver on on these goals that we feel are very Mm. important. And I will say that within Victoria, you know, we say we're wild Melbourne. It's very much a, a, a juxtaposition of, you know, to, to make that statement that, yes, Melbourne is wild and it is where the majority of our population are. So we're trying to make a point there. But um, broader Victoria is very much relevant to Melbourne, uh, wild Melbourne as well. I'll, I'll just quickly say as well, um, as much as, you know, we love people contributing um, photography, we're also very keen to get people writing for us. I mean, the majority of our writing team who are absolutely fantastic and so interested and dedicated, a lot of them, um, they're just people that sent us an email or, or a message on Facebook and said, look, I've got this great idea for an article or I recently visited this place. And obviously at the moment, um, they're, they're more people based in Melbourne and Victoria because they're writing about, you know, areas around there. But um, at the same time, we've had articles that definitely apply to the wider range of Australia so if people are interested in writing for us yeah as Chris Mm. said just drop us a line and um, yeah we'd love to talk to you about it thank you so much guys so remember that is wildmelbourne.org go on right now check them out definitely get those likes up on the Facebook page (laughs) as well and you will make Rachel's day for sure thank you (laughs) (laughs) thanks for coming into the studio guys thank you you so much for having having us That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week 
where the team will once again get lost, lost in, in science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.